Would you like to turn to John chapter 6? Uh, We are looking at a couple of valleys, particularly for new students, and uh, didn't realise that this weekend would be a student CU weekend away, and so lots of students have gone off on the weekend. Uh, So they're going to miss this values uh, statement about one of the crucial values. We we decided on only a short series this this autumn, instead of going... ploughing through our values for, for uh, uh, many weeks, just for the two weeks. The last week was grace, the central value in our church life of the doctrine of grace. And this week, we're talking about the Word and the Spirit together. And uh, as a church, we believe in the Word as the plumb line, the Word of God, the Spirit, Spirit-inspired Word of God is the plumb line for everything that we believe. This is, this is our foundation, the Bible. Um, but we also believe in the Spirit, activating our minds and our spirits, being with us in the 21st century. The Spirit of Jesus is with us. And these two foundational things, foundational values, guide us <clears throat> in our church life. So today... Uh, We're on the Word and Spirit, and we're in John 6 and verse 61. Verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this. Disciples grumbling. Well, would, would you have guessed that? Would you have thought that? They're with Jesus. Why are they grumbling? Said to them, do you take offence at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I think this is an extraordinarily powerful piece of scripture. And uh, I think that we are privileged 
to have this conversation recorded for us. See, the disciples were struggling with this clash of worldviews. Jesus was showing them that there is more to life than the physical. He was showing them that in the realm that he moved in, in the realm of the Father in heaven and the Son on earth, there's a spiritual dimension to life that actually is right at the heart and core of what it is to know eternal life. That to be a believer is to understand that all things are possible with God and that he dwells in a place which encompasses this earth and this physical realm within its own environment. And he's opening this up to them. And he said to them, if you go back in uh, chapter 6, you'll see he's talked about this very difficult passage about my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink and so on. And he's talked about this. And the disciples are saying to themselves, what on earth is he talking about? And of course, what he's talking about isn't on earth. That was a joke. I know it's tough after the wedding and all that. Um, Just humour me. When I say joke, laugh. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) The disciples were utterly confused. They couldn't comprehend. They didn't understand. What is he talking about? And of course, we have the advantage of hindsight now, and so we can look at it and analyze it and see that Jesus was prophesying his death and his resurrection and prophesying what would happen through the years ahead so that we come to a day like today and we've just taken communion. His body and his blood shed for us. And so the disciples were confused and it didn't calculate. It didn't make sense. It wasn't something that in their rational thinking they could grasp hold of. And they were very limited by their rational thinking. And one of the amazing things about rational thinkers is that they think they know everything and they're actually very limited by their rational thinking. It sounds good, it sounds logical, it's all neatly tidied up, brick upon brick. But actually, it's a constraint. And the disciples were finding this constraint. I don't understand this. And so, Jesus says to the disciples, well, if you don't understand this, how are you going to handle it when my body lifts up off the ground and disappears into other dimensions? (laughs) Because that's what was going to happen. He prophesies in this passage his ascension. He says it here. Verse 62. What if 
Then what if you're to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Well, where he was before, Jesus is talking about where he was before he came to earth. He's talking about his ascension back into the glorious dimensions that God dwells in. He's talking about something, he's not talking about, uh, you know, this God on the clouds that's of popular fiction, you know. He's not talking about, you know, the Father God with his long beard on the clouds looking down on earth. He's talking about the glory of the creator God who's created everything that you see. He's talking about the glory in which that God dwells. That's where he came from. He came from the Father and he's gone back to the Father and that going back to the Father happened as he was in front of his disciples. He sort of, whoo, floated up into the air. You know, a rational man thinks about that sort of thing as a prospective thing to happen and says it can't be. A secular man looks at it and thinks, this is not reality. And of course, the limitation of that is that actually the real reality is what Jesus is living in. And the real reality, really, really real, is that Jesus left our world and went back to the glory of the Father, different dimensions of living. And this is what Jesus talks about here. It's very interesting that, of course, today in the 21st century, this is a very current piece of thinking, you know. There's lots of people around in this country who will say to you, you don't believe that stuff, do you? Are you so stupid? And they don't realise that actually it's their limitations of thinking and the constraints they've placed upon themselves that mean they cannot see the wonder and the glory of Jesus Christ and who he was and is and why we follow him. I love this uh, bit later on in John's Gospel. I'm going to read it from the message. It's when Jesus is before Pilate, you know, and they have a philosophical, intellectual discussion. Do you remember Jesus before Pilate? And Pilate has a very 21st century attitude. Pilate is very, very modern. Postmodern, even. Pilate went back into the palace and called for Jesus. He said, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own? Or did others tell you this about me? Pilate said, do I look like a Jew? Your people and your high priest turned you over to me. What did you do? My kingdom, said Jesus, doesn't consist of what you see around you. 
If it did, my followers would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But I'm not that kind of king. Nor the world's kind of king. Pilate said. It doesn't say that here, but. Pilate said, so are you a king or not? Jesus answered, I'm retranslating the message here. Jesus answered, you you think so. Because I am a king, I was born. Sorry, I'll do that again. I'll talk about this translation in a minute. Um, Because I am king, I was born and entered the world so that I could witness to the truth. Everyone who cares for truth who has any feeling for the truth, recognises my voice. And Pilate said, what is truth? Oh, isn't he modern? What is truth? He said this, two millennia ago, and here we are in the 21st century in our relativistic culture where anyone can believe anything and what you believe is what you believe and there's no absolute God-driven truth anymore in our culture. But Jesus Christ came to earth to teach us the truth, to demonstrate the truth, to demonstrate, even to a cynical Roman, that there is absolute truth. God has demonstrated his truth, his standards, his being in Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father, because he is demonstrating the truth of all creation, the truth that exists in God himself. And a rational man in the 21st century may well, a secular man, say, well, what is truth? It's a pretty sort of slippery concept these days. You try and convict me of sin, but I don't know. What's true? Have I really sinned? But Jesus comes and says, this is the truth. The problem about that uh, translation is it's it's very tricky um, because Pilate Pilate says, so are you a king or not, is how the messengers put it. The Greek is tricky because the word can be negative or positive. So, you know, he's uh, he's saying... Are you really a king? 
Is it, is it really true? You're a king. You don't look like a king. This is not the sort of king I'm used to dealing with. Kings and princes come through this palace regularly and you don't look like one of them. You don't behave like one of them. You're different. Are you really a king? So a lot of translations have it, have it uh, slightly differently. Anyway, you're probably looking at yours at the moment. I hope you are. So here is the crux of the matter that we're looking at today. How do we find truth? That's what we're talking about today. Because the Christian takes two steps of faith. The first step of faith that the Christian takes is that there is a God-driven truth that stands as a plumb line against our lives. And secondly, we say this, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to earth to demonstrate that truth. The problem for the secularist is that both these statements are statements that require faith. So the word that we put our Christian faith in is called the Bible. And here it is. Here is a Bible. There's lots of words in here. Hundreds of pages and lots of words. And this Bible we say, has been written by many different people inspired by the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. But Jesus came, if you like, towards the end of this Bible actually, but the whole of it is inspired by the Holy Spirit so that what this becomes, therefore, is not men's words but God's words. Now, I can't prove that to you at all. How can I prove that? Well, there's, there's hints at proof in the sense that this has been seen that way and changed people's lives and people have lived and died for this, literally died for this, throughout the centuries. So it's surely more than just a book. But essentially, I take a step of faith and say, this is God's word. And secondly, that Jesus Christ is revealed in it. God's revelation of truth, God's plan from Genesis to Revelation, is the plan of the saving of mankind from their own problems of arrogance and disobedience towards God and the consequences of that is here in the Bible God's plan, how he's going to deal with it he deals with it through Jesus how do we know about Jesus? 
We just read a story about Jesus. It's here in the Word. Did it happen? Well, we can get secular again and say, well, the, the references, uh, the, uh, the number of references, the number of manuscripts, the number going back centuries, this is much better attested a book than any other book until you get to about 1500 or something. But essentially, this is what happens. God comes to you through the Spirit and reveals to you that it is his word. This is why it's word and spirit together. The Spirit of God comes and assures you this is the word of God. The Spirit is the member of the Godhead who makes this book relevant to you in the 21st century. The Spirit is the one who takes hold of the Word and makes it come alive in your life. It's the Spirit who makes this alive. When I got baptised in the Spirit, it came alive to me in a new way. I'd always found it quite interesting, but not that interesting. And then I got filled with the Spirit and suddenly it's, wow! Gosh! And golly, gosh! What a wonderful thing this is. That out of this page flies the power of God to change your life. Isn't it an amazing thing that some words on a page have such enormous power only when they are taken with the Spirit and by the Spirit and applied to your life. And so in many ways, you know, Tim Keller writes great apologetics. Tim Keller writes these great books. Uh, The Reason for God is one of them. I'm just reading another one at the moment. And uh, there, there are amazing things that you think, Surely anyone with any sense will be convinced by this, you know. It's great. It's great stuff. You read it and think, God, blow, it's really good. Yeah, give that to my non-Christian friends, you know, because it's obviously convincing. And yet somehow they don't get convinced always. How strange. But it's obvious. It's because the Spirit of God has to come in be involved in it. The Spirit of God and the Word of God go together to change the situation. So, Jesus' words here, let's just have a look at them. Because I've only got one page, I'm only one third of the way down it now. Okay, so let's look at, firstly, Jesus' words here. Verse 63. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Okay. I just love that phrase. It really came to me afresh. The flesh is no help at all. It's such a sort of modern sort of phrase, isn't it? It's so sort of now. Come, mate, the flesh is no help at all. You know? You want to bash that nail in? You know, that screwdriver's no help at all. It's not meant for bashing nails. You need a hammer. 
It's so obvious. Ah! <laughs> it's so obvious. The flesh is no help at all. This is the glorious thing. Your Christian faith, your Christian life is entirely down to the effort of God in drawing you to him and making you anew and giving you this word to live by. It's the spirit who gives life. It's all dead without the spirit. Without the spirit, this Bible is just dead words. But with the spirit, it becomes life-giving to you. And of course, most crucially, eternal life-giving to you. As Jesus said to the woman of Samaria, if you knew who was talking to you, if you understood who I was, if you'd really seen this, if God exposes this to you, as he will in a minute, by the way, (laughs) if you knew that, you would ask me, and I would give you water that springs to eternal life, and you'd never thirst again. And we used to sing this song, very long time ago. What? Never thirst again? No, never thirst again. What? Never thirst again? No, never thirst again. Whoa, those were the days. And not only that, but it's life, not just eternal, but life now. Life today, life tomorrow, life next week. It's all in God revealed through the Spirit. And the Spirit applies these life-giving words to us. You see, your flesh is no help at all. Jesus is very radical, isn't he? Your flesh is no help at all. You know, you start thinking about this, you'll just get yourself tied up in knots. Your flesh is no... It's not the right root, the right tool. The right tool is the indwelling Spirit. That's the right tool. Oh, you say, so you're saying I mustn't use my brain. No, I'm saying your brain needs to be guided by the Spirit of God, not by you. And the secularist problem is he's going around in circles guiding his own brain. Go this way. So, you know, he just follows his own brain round and round in circles. And something has to break in, God has to break in and chop that and stop it, and reveal the extraordinary world of spiritual life. Wow. So the Spirit gives life. And again in the message it says, gives life-making words. The Spirit gives you life-making words. Do you want to make your life? Have you got a recipe for your life? Do you want to make your life? Bake your life? Fry your life? What you need is the Spirit's life-giving words. So, in verse 66, he says, Whoa. 67, Jesus said, do you want to go away as well? It's hard. 
Everyone else has found it very hard. They couldn't make that jump. They hadn't got that spirit power within. They fell away. They walked away. They said, I can't, I can't understand this stuff, this Jesus stuff. Blow it. I'm going to go home and make a cup of tea. But Jesus says, do you want to go away as well? He's just prophesied his ascension. I wonder when Jesus did ascend, whether the disciples went, hmm. Well, we know they stood there going, But I wonder if after the angels had explained what was going on a bit, after they'd gone home, whether his disciples, as they went home, thought, oh, wow, he told us this would happen. It's in the word. Well, it wasn't in their word at that time. They were going to write that. So they wrote what they knew. Jesus ascended. We stood there and we watched him go. And it was not a hallucination. Nobody was on drugs. Nobody was drunk. We were fully rational men, awake, watching, and it happened. It was already amazing enough. This man with holes in his hands and his feet, this resurrected Jesus, this man who'd been raised from the dead by the power of God, they'd already eaten with him and talked with him. It was already amazing enough. The king of kings, raised from the dead. As if that wasn't enough, then we saw him ascend to go back to the Father, to go into those dimensions in which the Father dwells. We saw him go, and the angel said, in like manner as you saw him go, he will come again one day. And it will be just as surprising for us, probably, as it was for them. No wonder they went, oh, when Jesus comes again and the trumpet sounds, it will surprise us. We don't know how it's going to happen, how it's going to be that he will re-enter our dimensions from glory, but we know that he will re-enter with glory. We know he will re-enter with the power and authority of the one who's come to wrap up the world and finish it and start again with a new world, a new creation that's perfect again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We know that that's what's going to happen, but the impact of it, I don't think we can even begin to imagine what it's going to be like. If you're still alive when it happens, it's going to knock you for six. And you're believers. 
Imagine what it does to unbelievers. So the church's values is this. The Bible is the statement of God's plan. It's a history book. It's a prophecy book. It's full of good stuff. The main point of it is that we should base our lives on its truth. And that truth is mediated to us through the Holy Spirit. See, in verse 68, Simon Peter does one of his great answers again. Don't you just love Simon Peter? Don't you just love him? What a great bloke he is. We just, we just love him, don't we? Because Simon Peter is the one who makes all the crass remarks and all the wonderful ones. It's like the other disciples sort of pale into sort of averageness. Peter is either being tremendous or tremendously embarrassing. This is a tremendous moment. And we love him because we're the same. We're either tremendous or tremendously embarrassing. Is that true of you? It's true of me. Not the tremendous bit, just the tremendously embarrassing bit. So, he says in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And here's another statement for the 21st century. There is no one else. There never has been anyone else. There never will be anyone else. All the philosophies of men are in the dust. No philosophy of man has been able to change the heart of man. No philosophy of man has stopped wars. And the hatred of men for men. And the viciousness of men. No philosophy has been able to even make a pinprick in that. But Jesus, he has the words of life. Who else can you go to? There is no one else. He is the only one. He's worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be honoured. He's worthy to be worshipped. He's worthy because he's the only one. There is no other way to the Father except through me, he said. There is no other way. You can seek many other ways. You can look at many other ways. You can look at philosophies of men. You can look at other religions. Nothing compares to Jesus Christ because he is the truth. And so, of course, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one else to follow, guys. No one else. He's the only one worthy of you laying down your life and your ambitions and your desires and saying, Lord, shape me, mould me, make me all you want me to be. He's the only one. It's no one else. Is that your experience? You know, we used to sing uh, a song bit newer than the last one I sang. We used to sing this song about the Holy Spirit. Break me, 
mold me, can't remember the rest now, make me, break me. Sorry? Melt. <laughs> melt. Oh, that's it, melt me. Break me, melt me, mold me, make me. Yes. Is that your experience? Have you submitted your mind to the spirit of the King of Kings? Have you submitted your mind to Jesus Christ? Have you said, I put down rationality, I will not allow myself to go around this confusing, unending trajectory of following man's ways. Have you done that? Because now you can open up to the truth. The truth that sets you free. And it's the spirit who does this. So, verse 69, we've believed, says Peter, and have come to know. Isn't that wonderful? You could preach on all of this all night, couldn't you? If he's be- he says, we have believed. So you, we start out with a belief. We, we, we believe. We say, yes, I believe. This is the word of God. I believe Jesus lived and died. I believe he died for me. I believe that when I come, come to him, he saves me, relieves me of my guilt, sets me free. I believe, I believe. And then Peter says, and come to know. Oh boy, so much in those short words. Three short words, come to know. Do you know Jesus? See, we have blokes out the front here this morning who know Jesus and want to know him more. Who know Jesus and want that embrace of love from him. It's not that just that we've believed. We've come to know. And how have we come to know? Because the Spirit has revealed Jesus to us. That's how we've come to know. Jesus said, do you want to go away as well? Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed. And I've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus said when he was with his disciples at the Last Supper, he said, you wait, wait for the Spirit. The Spirit will come. I'm going, but the Spirit will come. I'm going to somewhere, to prepare a place for you. Hallelujah, isn't that good? You've got a place prepared for you. I'm going, sis, to prepare a place for you. So, bye for now. But I'll send the Spirit. I've got to go up, if you like to call it up, 
I've got to go into those dimensions of God, and in those dimensions of God, we will send the Spirit. And you will have the Spirit with you. And he says this in John 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, that's what he calls him in this passage, the Spirit of truth. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And of course there have been evangelicals through the years who have insisted that what Jesus is meaning here is that the spirit will guide those who write the New Testament. Because they're terrified that we might say that there is a truth that is not in the New Testament that the spirit will tell us. And they don't want that sort of heresy in the church. But in so doing, what they've done is miss the fact that the Spirit is with us individually, guiding us day by day into the truth of God's plans for our life. Nothing the Spirit guides you about, nothing the Spirit says to you will contradict the Word of God. It's a compliment not a contradiction. The Spirit of God is with us to give us the truth. And that's what he's done, not just for New Testament writers, but for those who read the New Testament. Yes, he did it for the writers, but he did it for the readers too. And even today, he continues. The Spirit of God continues today to bring the word of God alive to people who read it. That's why this church stands, for word and spirit. Can't have one without the other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these great words. That so inspire us. Lord, so, so wonderful. Word by word. So much there. Packed in. Pressed down. Running over. Sometimes it takes our breath away, Lord, when we read even a phrase, not even a sentence, and it just captures so much within it. Takes our breath away. What a wonderful God you are. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for the life that it brings. Lord, make us worthy of living that life. Help us, Lord. Stand with us as you've promised until the end of the age. In Jesus' name, amen.